one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. Hey. Welcome. Welcome, Des. <laughs> um, this episode today is a long time coming, so therefore it will be a two-parter because there's a lot of stories to get to. Today we're going to be talking about Hollywood fixers, the people who cleaned up the messes that their stars made. And we will be specifically talking about the fixers at MGM, Howard Strickling and Eddie Mannix. Now, my main source for this episode is a book called The Fixers by E.J. Fleming. And I also used some old newspaper articles as well to sort of see if I could substantiate some of these yeah. claims in this book. Let's get started. In 1924, 33-year-old Eddie Mannix was hired as an assistant to Louis B. Mayer at MGM. He ran the newly formed studio in Los Angeles. Eddie Mannix had sort of fallen into the movie business over 10 years earlier when he was working as a bouncer at Palisades Amusement Park in New York. This park was owned by Nick and Joe Shank. Russian Jewish immigrants who worked their way from selling beer at a concession stand to working alongside Marcus Lowe of Lowe's Theaters to buying the amusement park. Ooh. These guys were a big success story. Yeah. They made a ton of money, even just like selling their beer. That's how they raised capital. They have many hustles going. These, these Shank brothers <laughs> were definitely hustlers. Yeah. By 1919, Nick Shank was vice president of Lowe's. He then helped facilitate Lowe's acquisition of Metro, Goldwyn, and Mayer Studios and would find himself with a great deal of power. He managed East Coast operations while Louis B. Mayer managed the studio in Los Angeles. So Nick Shank sent Eddie Mannix out west to help Louis B. Mayer, but also he sent him out west to spy on Louis B. Mayer. Mayer and Shank did not like each other. Yeah. And he's like, I need you to spy on this guy and like give me the tea. Yeah. Like how's, what's going down at the studio? Mm. Cause Shank was like, I don't want, I don't like Los Angeles. I'm going to stay in New York. I'm an East coast boy. Yeah. But I'm going to need like eyes and ears. Yeah. In the West Coast. What's going on? What's, what, what's Louis B. Mayer up to? No good. No. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. <laughs> you know what, Dazzy? That's probably true. Eddie Mannix arrived in L.A. as an unknown. He was not a creative, nor did he know anything about getting like making movies. But as the author of this book described him, he was barrel-chested and tough. Ooh. I think barrel-chested is such an apt description for men of like from the 1920s to the 50s. Their chests were really protruding. Barrel chests. And hard. They were hard chests. (laughs) They even like, like that was like, if you were like a big chested man, you weren't to be trifled with. And you're in your suit. It's like bursting. It was always bursting at the, you didn't even have to be that in shape. No. You just had to have a barrel chest. And this guy had it. He was like intimidating. Yeah. And very tough. The only thing people knew about Mannix is like, oh, he's Shanks guy. He worked for the Shanks. Yeah. And he's barrel chested. So we know what that means. They called him the Irish man. Oh. Because he was Irish. Well. (laughs) They're like, "That's that's the barrel chested Irish man. Don't fuck with that guy. No. He was also mob-connected, a heavy drinker, a gambler, and he had never been faithful to his wife, Bernice. Wow, fun guy. (laughs) (laughs) This guy was a slut. 
You cannot hold this guy down. This guy had hoes in different area codes. Poor Bernice knew what was going on, but she was a devout Catholic, so she was not going to divorce him. She just sat by the window with her hanky. Yeah. Just like waited for him. She traveled out west with him. She knew he was fucking all kinds of broads. They had to get on that barrel chest. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Around this time, Howard Strickling was hired as the assistant to MGM's director of West Coast publicity, Pete Smith. Pete Smith did publicity for Joan Crawford. Now, Joan loved fucking, Mm. telling her friends, quote, sex is good for the complexion. Her reputation for loving sex, as well as her being bisexual, began before she even signed with MGM. Yeah, she came with it. She came with this reputation of being a, a slutty gal coming in from New York City. With her thin eyebrows. With her thin ass... <laughs> vampy eyebrows. Big vampy eyebrows uh, before they got all bushy. Yeah. And she was a frequent visitor of the lesbian nightclubs in Harlem. Nice. So like this lady... This lady fucks broads and men. Yeah. That's bisexual. (laughs) (laughs) But after she signed with MGM, she pretty much immediately became one of their biggest stars. And eyebrows were raised. Yeah. Thin eyebrows. (laughs) Because it was the 20s. They, her sluttiness, people didn't know why they liked her, but it's because she was a hoe. Yeah. And (laughs) sluts are cool. And that vibe just goes through even when you're playing a girl next door. It doesn't matter. No. You got a slutty vibe. They knew she was fun. They knew she scissored. She was going to the coolest gay clubs in Harlem. Yeah. Who doesn't she, want to hang out with her? She put out. She <laughs> <laughs> So people at the studio just assumed that because she was getting all this attention at MGM when she first signed that she must be fucking her way to the top. Who cares? They didn't, they didn't care about her talent, which we all know Joan Crawford was very talented. Yeah. But they were like, she's fucking Harry Rapp, the producer. Not Harry Rapp. <laughs> she apparently said of Rapp that his, quote, big nose hit his genitals, which oh. seems really anti-Semitic to me. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't like that, Joan. Now, to combat rumors that she had earned these roles lying on her back, Pete Smith, her publicist, told the press, Joan Crawford is a devout Catholic who goes to Mass every Sunday at St. Augustine's Church. Well, Catholics never do anything wrong. Especially devout ones. Wasn't she a Christian scientist? I think she was. I feel like that was popular for a bit in Hollywood. Why was that so popular? Because that woman was... In Hollywood, and she was a big deal. Was Amy Semple McPherson? Not Amy Man. Amy McPherson. I think she was like big in Hollywood. She was, we gotta cover her. She was big in Hollywood. We will cover her. I just am not remembering if it was Christian Science specifically. I think it is. I think you're right. Yeah. I think it's Christian Science. She's got a weird story. Oh, yeah. She's got a real weird story. Um, I think it's funny because I don't even I don't even mind if she slept her way to the top. Who gives a shit? Yeah, I'm not saying she. That doesn't mean you're not talented. But a lot of talented people don't get anything. Why? Why not do what you want to do? Yeah, get what you want. I just don't have a problem with it. It's the sex that bothers people, and not like oh, you come from a famous vaudeville family. So you got in that way. And guys do shitty things to get to the top. We never talk about that. Well, we will do an episode on <laughs> Louis B. Mayer at some point. Yeah. So Louis, it's like... Louis B. Mayer did a lot of things to maintain and gain power. Absolutely. Everyone does. So, you know? I don't know. I think fucking people is a, a lot better than the kinds of awful things that Louis B. Mayer and Harry Cohn did. Absolutely. Um. I was thinking about it. I was like, God, if we do a Louis B. Mayer episode, it's going to be like 10 parts. And then just like even reading anecdotes about him from this book, I'm like, I don't even know if I could handle an episode on him. He's just so awful. He's so awful and he's so ugly. 
Yeah. <laughs> like it just makes it extra bad. Yeah, what He's gives a hideous you the right? <laughs> you beast. So when Joan Crawford suddenly married Douglas Fairbanks Jr. in 1929, it was suspected that this was arranged by MGM to clean up her reputation as a slut. And he had some issues too. Did you know that I found a picture of Douglas Fairbanks Jr. being spanked among my great grandpa's like archival photos from his studio days? Did he, your grandpa take it? No, it oh. was like a silly. I don't know if he took. I don't know. It was like a studio photo. It wasn't like a pornographic photo. So it was just like a funny. It was outtake. like a silly photo of him laying across another actor's. I forget the other actor's lap, and he's like being spanked, and he's like, "Ooh, I'm bad boy." <laughs> but I found it because I was digging through all his like archival stuff. From Warner Brothers, and I found this photo, and I was like, "Oh my god, that's Douglas Fairbanks Jr." You recognized him? Well, I, <laughs> I googled to confirm, but oh, it okay. did. I think the photo actually did say Douglas okay. Fairbanks Jr. on it. Um, but then I tried to like find. I tried to Google like that image to see if like that was a some common goofy image, and I couldn't find anything of it. Oh. So I don't know if this is like a one of a kind photo or Probably. what. Yeah. Somebody must know. Um, I feel like we talked about Douglas Fair. He's just always around in these early days. Yeah. Causing trouble. He's always around, and so is his dad, Douglas Fairbanks Sr. And Mary Pickford. Mary Pickford. Anyway, so she... But he's a Nepo baby for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So he she marries Douglas Fairbanks Jr., allegedly to combat this image that she's like a floozy. And part of this image restoration apparently included finding and destroying copies of a couple of porno films that Joan Crawford allegedly made back in New York. Oh, yeah. Now, this was a big rumor. Because it's in Hollywood Babylon. It's in Hollywood Babylon, but it's not confirmed that these films ever existed. This, there's only anecdotal evidence. But there was um, nude photos, for sure. Yeah. Back then. But this was a rumor that Joan Crawford had made stag films. Right. So these rumors, the nastiness, they persisted throughout her career. Right. In her 1962 memoir, A Portrait of Joan, Mm. Crawford admitted that while she was on her honeymoon with Franchot Tone, she received a blackmail phone call. The caller said that he was in possession of a stag film that Joan was dancing in. But Crawford was like, yeah, I got that phone call, but the stag film doesn't exist. Also, pornography is so different back then than what we think of today. Like yeah. pornog- a stag film could have just been her dancing topless in front of men or something. Right. Like it could have been something so tame compared to now. I mean, we just don't know. Yeah. We don't, she wasn't necessarily like on all fours spreading her butt cheeks. And have taken a train. <laughs> Get a train run on her. Yeah. I'm just saying it could have just been her nude you know, on video being sexy or whatever. Yeah, that's true. So after a year with MGM, Eddie Mannix became the studio's general manager. Okay. He like ascended the ladder really quickly. This just seems like a made-up title though, because what does that even mean? It kind of was a made-up title because his real job was cleaning up messes. Yeah. Mannix would be the first person that Mayer saw every morning when he arrived at work, and it would remain this way for decades. He was very important. Wow. Howard Strickling would go on to become one of the first people that newly signed actors would meet upon their arrival at MGM. He interviewed them about their lives, asking if they had ever done anything shameful that they were hiding and like anything he should know about, basically. He's like, I'll, like I will find out. Yeah. And you don't, I don't want any surprises. Nothing. <laughs> I don't like that kind of ultimatum where you can't lie because they're going to fight. <laughs> Maybe I don't want to reveal my shameful thing. He put the fear of God into them. He's like, I will find out. So you better tell me now. Yeah. These like newly signed actors. That's scary. He assured them that he would be able to make sure that anything unsavory would stay out of the press. But they needed to be honest with him. So he didn't have any surprises. 
Yeah. Mayer and Strickling became very close. He was thought of as a brown noser, but Mayer loved being sucked up to. Oh, yeah. That's very Louis B. Mayer. Yeah. Everyone else was like, God, this Howard Strickling. If I was Louis B. Mayer, I'd be like, come into my office first thing and tell me everything as well. (laughs) (laughs) I want to get the tea every morning, too. Yeah, with your coffee. Yeah, just having my coffee, have these guys tell me all the secrets. What she sang in her interview. (laughs) (laughs) Anything juicy? So Strickling earned the nickname The Taster. Ooh. (laughs) As in, he might as well be tasting Mayer's food for poison before he ate it. I see. Like this little... He'll do anything, a little simp. He was a total simp for Mayer. Strickling was one of two people that Mayer left money to after he died. Whoa. Yeah. So it paid off. It really did pay off. Eddie Mannix had a sign on his desk that read, The only star at MGM is Leo the Lion. Ooh. That's, yeah. I like that old lion. I love Leo the Lion. Uh, I also read in this book that at one point MGM came up with a really stupid publicity stunt to fly a lion across the United States but the plane crashed and the lion escaped the plane in Arizona. Oh my god. And ran off. I'm just glad the lion survived. Yeah, the lion got out of there. <laughs> He's like, I'm out of here. And they're like, oh no, our lion. That's was the lion just sitting in his seat? <laughs> Wasn't it like a cage? <laughs> I think, yeah, he was sitting in in his seat with a little seatbelt on. Oh, my God. That's so cute. I, I'm just imagining. I love thinking of him in first class. Yeah, he, the line was in first class. Um, when Strickling became head of publicity, he developed a system that would be adopted by all the other major studios. He picked out a publicist for each star. They got a senior publicist for themselves and a junior publicist for the film they were working on. Publicity became an integral part of this successful function of the studio system. Yeah. As the movie industry continued to explode in the 1920s, gossip columns did too. Strickling loved working with gossip columnists because he knew that they wouldn't fact check anything. Wow. So he could tell them all kinds of crap and they'd be like, sounds good. Yeah. Strickling developed relationships with these columnists. He would give them flattering stories to print about MGM stars and asked for negative stories not to be written about. And in return, he would offer the gossip columnists exclusives. Sometimes he didn't have an exclusive story, so he would just make one up. Yeah. He'd be like, this is an exclusive. Joan Crawford, um, you know, uh, saved a baby from a fire. Right. Whatever. Whatever. Just make it up. He would just make shit up. And they'd be like, wow, thanks. We're not going <laughs> to fact check that. Yeah. It's amazing. Although Strickland and Mannix were quite different personality-wise, the two became very close over the many years that they worked together. They relayed all important information to each other, even employing spies to keep tabs on the stars. They got tea from everyone at the studio, including the lower-level employees like janitors and waiters in the cafeteria. Ooh, they had the best tea. They were kind of like Littlefinger. Yeah. And that they had these little spiders everywhere. Yeah. The star's assistants passed on all the tea about their employees to Strickling. Damn. So these stars' personal assistants were going behind their backs and being like, listen to what Joan Crawford did. You'll never guess who she had over last night. (laughs) (laughs) Judy Garland and Lana Turner's assistant was a woman named Betty Asher, and she was notorious for gossiping (gasps) about her employees. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, Employers, I'm sorry. So, But the studio was paying for these people. Yes. So it's like they technically didn't really work for the stars in a way. They worked for the studio. Yeah. Like they were assigned by the studio. But these assistants would be like very close with these stars. And then they would turn around and tell Howard Strickling. I'm surprised more people were like, bye, I'm getting my own assistant. Do you know what I mean? Like... Yeah, I guess they didn't know. Yeah. 
They didn't know. We're much more aware how shady people are today. (laughs) (laughs) So this woman, Betty Asher, who assisted Judy Garland and Lana Turner, she also happened to be fucking Eddie Mannix. (gasps) Asher was bisexual, and according to this book, she was also sleeping with Judy Garland. Ooh. Apparently at the suggestion of Eddie Mannix. That's so horny. He's like he's fucking like, this fuck woman. Judy <laughs> he's <laughs> fucking this woman and he's like, I think you should fuck Judy Garland. Tell me about it. <laughs> was this as good as Judy did it? <laughs> he was into it. Mannix and Strickling were privy to all telegrams going in and out of the studio. Many of these telegrams contained very sensitive information about stars, like extramarital affairs, money problems, etc. You sent that over a telegram? Seems like it would get out, right? Yeah, that doesn't seem like super reliable. No, because the person who has to tap it out... They know. They're like... (laughs) Stop. Yeah. (laughs) Although the information was sensitive... That didn't stop Eddie Mannix from reading the telegrams to his girlfriends at bed in bed after work. Dream guy. <laughs> Imagine having a one night stand and he starts reading these telegrams <laughs> to you. And they're really filthy. And you're like, holy shit. This is the best fuck yeah. ever. Clark Gable did what? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so incredible. So Obviously, Eddie Mannix and Howard Strickling would go on to become two of MGM's most valuable assets, Hollywood fixers. Mm. And that's where we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money, and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash HCS. Mannix and Strickling were connected to just about everyone in town who had some kind of relationship with the stars at MGM. So like anyone who, especially like professionals, who had these relations with the stars... 
they also made themselves have relations with them. Right. So, for example, doctors, pharmacists, psychiatrists. Oh, my God. Which seems like very unprofessional. If It's unethical. Well, yeah, it's yeah. totally unethical. If you're a doctor and you're like, you'll never believe how many milligrams of such and such Judy Garland's taking. Yeah. Because they're just using this information to control them then. Yes. Yeah. Because these stars know that if Louis B. Mayer knows like the most shameful things about their lives, he can get them to do anything. Yeah. So in turn for sharing this information with the fixers, these people were rewarded handsomely with invites to premieres, Hollywood parties, and even money. And sometimes they were offered sex. Whoa. One of the spots that women were procured from was the House of Francis, which was a high-class brothel in Hollywood. This will be its own episode. Yeah, I know this place. So many of the women at the brothel had come to Hollywood looking for fame, and they'd get a tiny taste of it under a temporary contract at MGM, only to wind up spending more time in bed with powerful men than actually on set. Mm. Which is really sad. Yeah. They'd get this like dangling carrot. Right. But never actually make it. And then they'd get referred to like go to the house of Francis and fuck these powerful men. Right. And then yeah, they just Because they're stay just there. going into this situation with the people knowing they're using these girls. Yeah. Yeah. Barbara Lamar seemingly like two things more than acting. Men and drugs. And by the end of 1924, her addiction to cocaine and morphine was all-consuming. Obviously, her work was suffering greatly. And when she was found unconscious in her home, Mannix and Strickling had her sent to a sanitarium. Strickling told the press that she was suffering from exhaustion. Wow. The first known case of exhaustion. This is a hundred years ago. Yeah. And this has to be one of the earliest times that exhaustion right. has been used to be cover up something. To cover up some other thing. We heard that we've heard we used to hear that all the time. Right. So it could be anything from drug addiction to alcoholism to something they're covering up just an illness even, right? Or an eating disorder or whatever. Like, Something. Yeah. But I remember growing up, and especially in the early 2000s, exhaustion. It's just such a bullshit. Cause, we all knew it was covering something. Because you never hear about like non-famous people being hospitalized for exhaustion. It was only ever famous people. Because they had to say something. Because that person was off off the scene, right? Or wasn't being seen. Yeah. So Mannix and Strickling had her do interviews about the dangers of drugs. And they even paid her a little money to do these interviews. She later moved into her dad's house in Altadena, where she died in January of 1926. So really sad. Two years after this rehab stay that she did, she died. Of Well... Yeah. It was reported that she had died of tuberculosis and extreme dieting. Mm. But that was apparently a euphemism for dying of alcoholism and addiction. Right. Later that year, MGM stars Greta Garbo and John Gilbert moved in with each other and planned to marry. Although Garbo and Gilbert had proved to be a popular on-screen couple, Louis B. Mayer disliked both of them. In fact, one of the first things he ever said to Greta Garbo when he first met her in Germany was, we don't like fat girls in America. She should have murdered him. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody else, I forget who it was, but someone else in the book was like, Garbo, her name sounds too close to garbage. What? (laughs) It's like so mean. People are so brainless. (laughs) It's so mean. So as for Gilbert, Mayor thought he was slutty and disrespectful of women, which is honestly so rich coming from him. I mean, he's disgusting. He is the most disrespectful of women. You just want to punch him. He's awful. 
Mayer said, quote, I hate the bastard because he doesn't love his mother. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that so gross? I don't know, because it's like, you're full of it. He's just mad because Gilbert is actually hot. Yeah, and, and really people talented. Fuck, people fuck him because they want to fuck him. Right. No they, one fucks Louis <laughs> B. Mayer because they want to. Nobody. Nobody. Howard Strickling found this baffling because he had always known John Gilbert to be a really nice guy. He's like, yeah. geez, why does Mayer hate this guy? Mayer's partner at MGM, Irving Thalberg, also felt the same way. He's like, Gilbert and Garbo are both great. Yeah. I don't know why Mayer hates them so much. Jealous. Well, on the day that Garbo and Gilbert were to be married, Garbo bounced. Yeah. She left him at the altar, Mm. leaving 500 wedding guests and her groom-to-be at a mansion in Beverly Hills. That's hot. Well, <laughs> 500 guests, 500 guests. Like that's crazy. You have to be that takes so balls. <laughs> confident to do that and shameless. Yeah. I mean, Jesus, at that point I'd be like, let's just, I'm going to marry this person and then like get it an old. Yeah. To save 500 face. people is so many people. Well, Louis B. Mayer was one of the wedding guests and this was like, oh, he loved this. Yeah. Because he loved seeing John Gilbert humiliated like this. So he Mm. walked up to John Gilbert and he said, what's the matter with you, Gilbert? Don't marry her. Just fuck her and forget about her. And he said the word fuck to me, I'd throw up (laughs) on the spot. (laughs) This enraged Gilbert and he attacked Mayor. Yes. Like he jumped up on top of him, knocked his glasses to the floor. Not the glasses. Knocked the (laughs) glass. I'm sure in the scuffle they got like stomped on by somebody. Those little round glasses. His spectacles. The wireframe. And then he, Louis B. Mayer also fell on the floor. Nice. This became like a full on brawl. Dude, see that? Then I'd be like, this was totally worth it. <laughs> like, I don't care if the wedding didn't happen anymore. This was worth the, the fucking blender. Seeing men beat each other up in tuxes is one of the most comical things you can see. Also, nothing is funnier than when a dick finally gets hit after so so many times no one does anything and then finally someone loses it on them. It's like, no. finally. You just know so many people at that wedding were like, this is... This is the best thing I've ever seen in my life. Absolutely. They were so happy. Yeah. So um, Eddie Mannix was there and he had to break the fight up. You picture him barreling his <laughs> chest in. <laughs> he in the center. You know, they pushed their way in with no, that big he, old chest. He walks chest first. Yeah. He pushed his way in, put his hand out, picked Mare up. <laughs> Stop Gilbert with his one hand. Yeah, he does that, like Eddie Mannix does that thing where he just puts a hand on someone's forehead. Yeah. And they're like swinging. And then the other arm too, he just lifts Louis B. up. <laughs> Louis B. Mayer up. And Louis B. Mayer has to d- dust. He acts like a cat, you know, like nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> he does like the spit. Mayer threatened to ruin Gilbert. He Ooh. said to him, he's like, you're through. Yeah. You're finished. You'll never work in this town again. And Mayer did ruin Gilbert, but not immediately. Mm. He did like kind of a long con. He like waited a little bit. And then all of a sudden, he just kept putting Gilbert in shittier and shittier films. Mm. So immediately following this wedding brawl, Garbo and Gilbert made a couple more films together. But after that, it was all shitty. Yeah. It was all shitty movies. This sent John Gilbert into a tailspin, mm. turning to alcohol to deal with the humiliation of going from one of MGM's biggest stars to becoming a joke. One night when Gilbert was at home drinking, he saw a couple in a car parked below his house in the hills, and this angered him for some reason. So he grabbed a gun what? and started firing at the car. That's so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> he was really drunk. The couple was unharmed, but there would be cleanup. Eddie Mannix dealt with the police, and he made sure that this couple had a brand new car because there was like bullet holes in the car. Yeah. Gilbert's bad behavior continued in April of 1927. According to E.J. Fleming, 
Gilbert drove drunk to Santa Monica to the Miramar Hotel where Garbo was staying with her on-again, off-again lover, director Maurice Stiller. Gilbert pounded on Garbo's door, begging to be let in, but she refused. And so he scaled up her balcony. Whoa. Marit Stiller proceeded to then throw John Gilbert off of the balcony. Like, he, he gets to the balcony, and Marit Stiller's there. He, like, undoes the fingers that are holding yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> he threw him off the balcony. Dude. And onto the sand below. What a loser. That's, like, so embarrassing. I just picture him watching him climb, <laughs> yeah, and like, then finally when he gets there, nope. it's like, nope. <laughs> so the police were called, but then the police called Eddie Mannix, because they knew to call Mannix yeah. first. Mannix had been given word by Louis B. Mayer not to help Gilbert out this time. Ooh. And so he was arrested and sentenced to 10 days in jail. Howard Strickling made sure that the press knew. While it is true that John Gilbert was arrested in April of 1927 for being drunk and disorderly, the paper's story of this differ from what is in E.J. Fleming's book. Hmm. So he did get arrested. He was sentenced to 10 days in jail. But this is how the papers reported it. The Los Angeles Times said, according to police records... Gilbert came to the station at 3 a.m. vociferously demanding the arrest of someone whom he, he neglected to mention. The night watch refused. Gilbert then became boisterous. So basically, they're like, Gilbert just like randomly came into the police station and we arrested him in the station because he was drunk and disorderly. Right. The report in the LA Times continued saying that John had been hosting a party at his home and had become so enraged with a couple of party guests that he drunkenly drove down to the Beverly Hills police station and demanded that his party guests be arrested. Because they were protecting Garbo. Exactly. Yeah. Because they don't give a shit about him, but they're not going to drag Garbo into it. Even if she's an innocent victim. That's immediately what I thought upon reading E.J. Fleming's account of this and then reading what was like in the papers. Yeah. Is they wanted to keep their big star Greta Garbo out of this. And even the director maybe too, just both of them. Right. They were both like powerful Hollywood people. So Gilbert's in the police station screaming at everybody about how they need to go to his house and arrest people who are irritating him. It's also like they combined the other story with this one, the car that he like drunkenly got in his car. No, that he shot the car. It's like they I feel like they're combining a little elements of the people he was mad at in the new story. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So, they arrest Gilbert. And to add to the humiliation, the Times then printed a publicity photo of Gilbert with jail cell bars overlaid on the top. <laughs> so, it's like not an official photo of him in jail. It's like like a smiling picture of him, but then it's like reenactment. They, <laughs> but then like somebody like superimposed jail cell bars. That's pretty funny. I'm gonna post it on post our Instagram that picture, because it sounds fucking funny. It's really funny because it's a publicity still photo. Yes, right. Where so he's smiling like, yeah. and like wearing a hat. Yeah. Um, it's even worse because the photo's caption read, "Beverly Hills presents John Gilbert in a new epic, a drama of hallucination." <laughs> It also said on the top, like, John Gilbert stars in 10 days. The press back then had absolutely no chill with people who were struggling with addiction. (laughs) Like, they did not care. You think it was bad 20 years ago? And it was. It was horrible. Somehow it was even worse in the 1920s. Right. It's just so bad. They were so mean. John Gilbert claimed that he was suffering from hallucinations. So, like, after the fact, he's like, ah, I was hallucinating. Right. That's why I came into the police station. He had to, like, clean up his own mess. Mm. He also said, quote, I was just lonesome and went to the station and made an ass of myself. It happens. (laughs) (laughs) John had been ordered to spend 10 days in jail, but he wound up only spending around 24 hours. He was saved when some friends in high places had a talk with the judge. 
Those friends were Beverly Hills Chairman of the Board of Trustees, S.M. Spaulding. Yes, the street Spaulding. Oh. And actor Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Once again. Coming to save the day. Mm. The Times reported that MGM had attempted to employ the help of Will Rogers to get their star out of trouble. Famous friends of Gilbert's showed up at the jail begging for his release, prompting Louis B. Mayer to have to cover his ass. Because all these other people were like, hey, this is a, we love John Gilbert. Yeah. Why is he in jail? And Louis B. Mayer's like, uh, yeah, I agree. He shouldn't be in jail. Yeah. I like him too. <laughs> so Louis B. Mayer claimed that whoever arrested Gilbert was just looking for fame. Right. He said that Gilbert wasn't bothering anyone and he should have only been made to pay a small fine. But the damage is done. The damage is done. He got what he wanted and he gets to come out looking clean because he's like, yeah, this is a miscarriage of justice. Mayor even picked Gilbert up from jail upon his release. And they were greeted by a swarm of reporters. Mm. Gilbert was asked if it was true that he made a pact with Douglas Fairbanks Jr. to stay sober for one year or else he would promise to go back to jail and serve the remainder of his sentence. Gilbert said, no, that's not true. He then said of his night in jail, I met a lot of swell guys around there and they took care of me in great shape. He was like very, being very positive about his experience. Right. Like most alcoholics, a stint in jail was not enough to stop John Gilbert from drinking. He was stopped by police after he nearly ran himself off the road in another drunken attempt to drive to the beach to find Garbo and her lover. Gilbert was carrying a gun. This time, Mannix and Strickling made sure the story stayed out of the papers. But the humiliation did not end there. Mm. During this time, the first motion pictures with sound were being made. And for many silent film actors, this meant the end of their careers. You may have been a successful silent film star, but maybe you had an accent or the studios didn't like the sound of your voice or how you recited your lines. They're like, you were great when you were quiet. Right. But no one wants to hear you talk. No. Especially the combination, because you really had to act with your face more in silent films. Yeah. And I feel like they couldn't relearn, because when you're speaking, you don't have to emote as much. (laughs) No, not the way they did in silent films, that's for sure. So it was really hard. A lot of these people just like, that was it. I can't stand it. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever see Singing in the Rain? Yeah, of course. We're gonna get we're gonna get to that. Uh, I just always think of her moving from silence, the actress uh, in that movie. Yeah, she had that horrible voice. It was really funny. No, I mean Singing in the Rain is like inspired by true events. Yeah, obviously, and it was inspired by a specific event in John Gilbert's life. Oh, okay. So. John Gilbert had a fine-sounding voice, but something went seriously wrong on his first feature with sound. The film was 1929's His Glorious Night, directed by Lionel Barrymore, who was apparently drunk the whole time. Mm. At the film's premiere, the audience burst into laughter when they heard John Gilbert talking in a comically high-pitched voice. It's alleged that Louis B. Mayer deliberately fucked with the sound so that Gilbert would sound ridiculous. Ooh. This story would inspire Singing in the Rain. Now, this story has been like a very pervasive myth throughout Hollywood history that he has this comically high, squeaky voice in this film. Of course, there are zero places to find this film online. Right. It's not streaming. I don't know where you can get a copy of this film. But because it seems like it's so rare to view this movie, it's easy for that kind of myth about the way his voice sounded in it to persist. Right, but it didn't sound that way in any other films. Well, this was his first feature, Talkie. I know, but after that, no, his it did voice, not. Yeah. It did not. In fact... The contemporary reviews for the film were mostly tepid, but Gilbert's voice was was not criticized. Right. The LA Times said, Gilbert has not as yet 
hit quite the perfect intonation for the microphone, but barring a certain over-resonant delivery of lines, his delivery is crisp and fine. They were like, he sounded fine. And they were probably super focused on people's voices in these first talkies. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because there were these... A lot of the reviews for this film were like, you know, the the results, it's in, you know, it's like, we all know now. Everyone's been on the edge of their seat waiting to hear how beloved film star John Gilbert's going to sound. It's so funny because you know how you, especially now we have like online where you'll know someone online for a while. And then when you hear your, their voice, it can be shocking because it's not what you were thinking. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily mean bad or good. It's just not what you had. So it's always a little like off-putting at first. Like, wait, what? Like, do you know what I mean? Like Like that one person we heard on a podcast. Oh my God. They were a guest on a podcast. That that (laughs) would have been a crazy talky moment. (laughs) I, there's, oh my God. Like there's someone Desi and I only knew from online and they were a guest on a podcast and both of us had listened, like had whatever, one of us had listened to that podcast and was like, you need to hear this. You need to hear this. I can't believe that's what they sound like. No, you had listened to it and told me. Yeah. And I was kind of like, oh, it's probably like whatever. But it was like a million times crazier than I ever could have <laughs> expected. Because <laughs> it was like the rare time where you didn't oversell, not no. you, but in general, you can be oversold uh, and you get that expectation. But no. this was like, I would have never gone to that that I would have never gone to what it was in fact, at all. I probably undersold it. Yeah. It was crazy. Because it's not of this time. Well, <laughs> it's like not how anyone sounds today. So it was really weird. It was one of the wildest things I'd... Because like neither of us are like friends with this person, but we knew them from online. No, it was truly... And I forgot about that. <laughs> That was a talking moment. It was a total talking moment. So that must have been what it was like for like at least some people. Even if their voice didn't sound bad, it was just like radically different. Yeah. It's just, it's the difference that jars you, even if it's not bad. I mean, it's probably like, you know, the inverse for us where people hear our voices and then they see a picture of our faces and they're like, woof. Or I don't know. Yeah. No, people have said that they didn't think I would sound how I sound. Not like in a negative way. If they saw your face first? Or just from knowing me online. I guess they all thought I would sound like Selma Diamond or something. Like Paloma uh. Diamond? Wait, who's Sel- oh, Selma Diamond. Uh, Selma Diamond, like some old broad. Like, rah! <laughs> like, no, you sound sweet. I was like, so sorry. <laughs> um, so, yeah, his voice was fine. The San Francisco Examiner was pretty positive about Gilbert's voice, saying... Does John Gilbert's voice sound the way he looks? The answer is yes. Yeah. There were reviews that commented on the cheesiness and the unintentional comedy of the love scenes in this film. This was like a romantic film, but it the these love scenes were comical in that like unintentionally. Right. So they specifically commented on a scene where John Gilbert repeatedly says, I love you. The New York Standard Union said an audience in Manhattan nervously laughed during the love scene. They said his voice sounded strident and affected. I love you. I love you. <laughs> I bet you that was also sort of disconcerting going from love scenes where you're hearing them say stuff. It just sounds stupid. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, And I can imagine nervous laughter because it's like, you're not just seeing people kiss anymore. You're hearing them. Yeah. Like talk about kissing. I bet you it was just a little awkward for film goers. Yeah. The Los Angeles Times said, the audience last evening chose not to take the love scenes too seriously. And there was therefore comedy aplenty. I wish I could have been there. I know. Gilbert's next film... 1930s Redemption was a bomb. (gasps) Variety called it dull, sluggish, agonizing, Mm. hardly a redeeming aspect. And sadly, John Gilbert's alcoholism progressed and he died of a heart attack in 1936. So this is a very tragic story of someone who was at the peak, like the top of his field. And I feel like there are several 
actors from that period where I would see them in movies and be like, oh, whatever, was this their only big movie? And you kind of wondered what where they disappeared to. And I wonder if so many of them are sort of similar to this case. Where they fucked up somehow and just got the shaft. Yeah. And like, got put in shitty movies. They were sabotaged. I think because now we have this mindset of um, a modern day filmmaking where actors choose their roles. So they're kind of more responsible for picking a turd. Yeah. <laughs> and back then, I mean, I don't know if they are, but like. If you're a big star. Yeah. You can. Back then, I feel like they truly had no choice. So well, if they, they kept, if they kept getting put in shitty movies, it really wasn't their fault, but their careers would suffer the consequences. Yeah, they were at the whims of the studio bosses from the 20s to the 50s. Yeah. Because that's how the studio system worked. And they would be punished with those films. That yes. was a very common thing to punish someone, even a big stars like Judy Garland and Ava Gardner, putting them in a stinker if they were you know, talking back or whatever. Right. And kind of humiliating them. Yeah. Yeah. It's really sick. It is fascinating uh, how long it lasted that way, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. And like you were stuck with that studio. And you could reach the highest peak of fame and still be taken down. It didn't matter. Like, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, everyone was vulnerable to that. Right. Um, even the biggest stars, which is wild. Because you think you would reach a threshold where even Louis B. Mayer couldn't hurt you anymore because you were so famous. No, he could always hurt you. No. He could always <laughs> And all of them, you. all of the studio heads. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but MGM is obviously, like, famously, there's just so many stories. Because they had a lot of the big women stars of the day, too, and I feel like they got... They got it the worst yeah. in many ways. Um, but yeah, it's crazy. Well, next week we will delve into the 1930s and 40s and 50s, bringing you more stories. Okay. Sorry to end on kind of a sad note about John Gilbert. He was very talented. I mean, also he was an alcoholic and like that was not helpful. No, and he just... Literally drank himself to death. It's so sad. Which is so sad. I mean, so many of these like forgotten silent film stars were had alcoholism, like really bad, like an addiction. Well, they were dying very young. Yes. Uh, like you mentioned, Barbara Lamar. Yeah. Uh, like, I don't doubt that dieting even maybe played a role with the alcoholism and drug addiction, like right. all of it together. Unhealthy living. Extremely like. To an extreme. Right. Um, Not taking care of themselves. Yeah. It's sad. And being worked ragged. And there's just so many stories. All of Thomas. Yeah, we've covered a bunch. I mean, morphine was like big. People loved morphine. (laughs) People were into morphine. They loved morphine. Which is wild, right? Like, because they would often... it's kind of like oxy, like starts off, they needed it for something. Yeah. And then becomes uh, an addiction. Or they just are like, oh, that's fun. Yeah. They try that, it once. Let's go to an opium den or like yeah. whatever. I <laughs> was like, you just did it. Yeah. You know, it's really sad. Yeah. Anyway, we will be back next week and we will be back later this week for our mini episode. Bye. Bye.